Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hi, this is Colin McEnroe. What you're about to hear is a live program that I and several other people recorded, I don't know, a few weeks ago. I've wanted for a long time to do something that celebrated the music and the legacy of Laura Nero, partly because she's kind of a major Connecticut figure, but also she's a towering figure in the world of pop music, and she's also kind of a lost civilization, too. People don't remember her. People who remember or at least know a lot about music from, say, 1968, 1969, they don't recognize the name, which doesn't make any sense to me. But we assembled some great musicians and a wonderful audience, and you're about to hear what happened. So let me just tell you this. For a few weeks in 1969, three of the top ten songs on the Billboard charts, three of the top ten songs were all written by one young woman. Now, she didn't sing any of the versions of those three top ten songs, but those top ten songs were Eli's Coming and When I Die, and this was the third. One, two, three, four... Educator. 
She has a line of sheets and towels at JCPenney. I mean, it's really like a, a vertically integrated monopoly. But no, you're going to really you're gonna have a lot of fun because she insists that you have fun. The rest of us do not insist that you have fun and probably will bring you down a little bit. Uh, no, not really. To the right, but not politically, of Latanya Farrell. <laughs> is my very good friend, one of the best people I know, an amazing guitarist, producer, arranger, advocate for people with rare cancers, political activist. I don't know what the heck else he's doing these days. Stop, all right, all right. Stop Jim Chapdelaine, ladies and gentlemen. And at the piano, as usual, and I think he's the record holder for the most freshly squeezed done, the most fresh squeezes. I don't, I'm not sure what the record is actually called, but apart from me, he's been on this stage more often than anybody, my partner in crime for 40 years or so, the great maestro, the great pianist, the great writer about music and thinker about music, Mr. Steve Metcalf. All right, so we should say that Latanya is but a tender shoot coming up out of the earth compared to us old guys up here. And so her relationship with Laura Nero is different. You were kind of just born a little bit too late to really have a strong relationship with Laura Nero herself. So one of the ways that you work, I think, is listening very, very carefully, not only to the song as it was done by the Fifth Dimension, but, but to the way she sang it. So say a little bit about what you heard and all that. I first have to say, I'm not a twig. Right? I'm, I'm a, you're a, you're a I've been around. Shoot. You're a tender shoot. <laughs> I've been around. Um, but Laura Nero, I, I will tell you, I have completely fallen in love with her. I've fallen in love with, with her vocals. I have fallen in love with the conversations she has in music. In this song, Wedding Bell Blues, I felt her just breaking down. Mm-hmm breaking down. I felt the heartache. She wears her heart on her sleeve. There's even video, there's not much video of her singing, but the video of her singing this song, she looks profoundly sad. I mean, so we should say that, first of all, The Fifth Dimension, when they did it, Marilyn McCoo, who wound up being kind of the real superstar out of the group, had begun a relationship, was an item with Billy Davis, who was also in the group, so his name being bill so she without even warning him she recorded the lead track on this and so that when he came in he was hearing this um the song itself was suggested to laura nero her mother gilda was very good friends with a i think steve a pretty well-known at that time jazz singer helen merrill a singer of the 50s yeah did almost a definitive version of you'd be so nice to come home to really wonderful singer and she was also in love with a guy named Bill, who was a B-movie actor. And Laura Nero wrote this song about their relationship as a very young girl. And Helen Merrill said later, you know, she really nailed it. She really kind of got to it. But, you know, I think also, and if we get to the two musicians over here, as we go along, we're going to talk about the complexity of these songs. But, Jim, this one feels more straightforward somehow, or more like a song that a 50s band singer maybe could have sung. One thing we've learned that became increasingly terrifying as we sort of explored this is, <laughs> is that Laura Nero writes very asymmetrically and not, she doesn't write a verse and a chorus and a verse and a chorus and a bridge and a verse and a chorus and we go out. She writes, I feel this way, I feel this way, and now I feel like speeding up and now I feel like slowing down and now I want to change chords and now I want to... So it's like one long 
thing that I remembered sort of from when I first... This was my gateway drug into Laura Nero was uh, Wedding Bell Blues. It wasn't the best way to discover her for me. But it's shaped kind of like a normal song. And then after that, I think the shape of her songs changes because she wrote so much from her heart. And in fact, when we were learning this, you came in and said, the way she says Bill. <laughs> like, we talked about the way she said Bill for about 20 minutes, I think. Well, yeah, she, right? she talked about the way. Yeah, yeah, all right. yeah. We listened. I right? was just so moved. And like Chappie was saying, her... <clears throat> her writing and her lyrics and everything so asymmetrical and the way that I was able to really learn the song, memorize the song was to listen to how she was feeling the song, how she was delivering the song and it really helped me to go with emotion. So I learned her songs really by the emotions I felt through her lyrics and the way she attacked a note or the way she sung Bill, oh, she was sobbing. <laughs> so Steve and I have chords and some melodies and stuff here. And you, you just have like sad, happy, <laughs> angst. I do. Exuberant. A series of emoticons written by music right. bars. I do. Um, and Steve, I mean, we're already kind of hinting at this, but so these songs, when they were released in 1969, Three Dog Night does Eli's Coming, Blood, Sweat, and Tears does And When I Die, The Fifth Dimension does Wedding Bell Blues, but then you go and you hear the Laura Nero versions, and there is quite a bit of space in between the, the covers and the way that she thought of them, right? You know, it's true, and, you know, at the risk of... I mean, all this talk about feelings and stuff, that's great. But uh, <laughs> at the risk of saying something geeky and, and technical, I'd like to make a brief point here about something that's geeky and technical. <laughs> and what it is is, I, I think we would all agree, seriously, that there is a kind of a sound world that this woman's music belongs to. And when you hear a Laura Nero tune, it's like, oh, that must be a Laura Nero tune. And there are some reasons for that, but there's one in particular that struck me as we were getting ready for this evening, and that is that Laura Nero is undoubtedly the queen of seventh chords. Now, what do I mean by that? A, a seventh chord is simply a four-note chord, if you'll forgive me here. So if we, if we play just a C major triad, C, E, G, and if we then add a B natural on top, which is a seventh away from the root, the C we get a C major seventh chord. And if we were to start with a C minor triad and add a B flat, we would have a C minor seventh chord. Anyway, the point is that, I mean, Laura Nero didn't invent seventh chords, but she became a person who used them in a very distinctive way. As it happens in the 60s and early 70s when she was writing, seventh chords became a kind of device that people in the rhythm and blues world and even the gospel world used. There was a kind of a piquancy to these chords that translated into a kind of a funkiness, or, or as we used to say in those days, soul music. And Laura's music really partakes of that in a very genuine way. So that, for example, the song we just did... Those are all seventh chords, every single one of them. And if you continue looking throughout the song, they continue to show up not as a garnish or a sort of a little spice, but as the main course. And this is really what they're made out of. 
And I think it's one of the reasons why this music is so timeless and, and funky and has that soulful quality that we still recognize. And with that, this evening's lesson in music theory is Can over. You Thank you. Play the example. Well, yeah, so if you were, if you were to play um, the straightest tune in the world... Right? Thank you for not singing along. <laughs> but with a little rhythm and a lot of seventh chords, we would get... And, and that's uh, thank you very much. And that's really sort of the essence of what this sound world is all about. And it's very striking. And you know, she had it from her very earliest songs, which Wedding Bell Blues is one, to the end. And it's really one of the things I think that gives her music such distinction. So there's the geeky technical stuff for tonight. Now, now talk about your feelings. Right. So the the pink slip goes up to the bursar's office. Uh, <laughs> And then the yellow slip goes to your academic advisor. Um, all right, so actually I'm going to stay with Steve for just a second here because so Laura's born in the Bronx into a family named N-I-G-R-O, which was actually pronounced Negro or Nigro. Anyway, it was pretty obvious she was not going to have a career with that particular last name. She changed it to Nero. She came from a family that was, I think, Polish, Jewish, Russian, Jewish, and Italian, very much in an urban environment. Her father was a professional trumpet player. Her mother was a real music lover who listened to a lot of different kinds of music, including jazz and, you know, Ravel and Satie and stuff like that. And she actually is named after the song Laura, which was written by a composer named David Raxon for the famous movie. And that song sounds something like this. One of the great Hollywood tunes, and which, if I may say this, <laughs> one night in the Metcalf household when Nancy was like eight and a half my wife, Nancy, was eight and a half months pregnant, and we had yet to decide on names. I was noodling that song, and this is true, and we both sort of looked at each other and said, well, I think we have our name. So, and Laura Metcalf is 35 years old, so it's working out. Her name was actually originally Clifton Webb Metcalf, and that just didn't seem to... Yeah, wrong idea. Well, one thing about that song, just a little sort of tidbit is, so th the song is a, it really is like the perfect noir movie song, I think. And it's just threaded all the way through that movie. And then it was so infectious and catchy that they decided that they needed to release it as an actual song, a single. And Johnny Mercer was, re uh, was recruited to write the lyrics, w which are really wonderful. I mean, Laura is the, is the face in the misty night, footsteps that you hear down the hall, the laugh that floats on a summer night. Mercer, being who he was, actually never bothered to watch the movie. Um, he just figured he, you know, he could figure it out from the music, what kind of movie that was. So, so Laura Nero, she grows up kind of dancing in several different musical worlds at once. She has grown up listening to these jazz songs and music standards. Her father is a working trumpet player, and she's also being introduced to the world as a very, very young songwriter. 
and actually, I think her first real gig gig might have been as an opening act for Shelley Berman, the comedian, uh, which you take what you can get early on. But under the tutelage and the stewardship of her agent, David Geffen, she wound up opening also at, or sort of debuting at, the first of the really great American music festivals. Before there was Woodstock, there was Monterey. So, and I think it's sort of important to think about that for a second, because Jim will now show you what, I mean, Monterey was mamas and papas, but it was really kind of Jefferson Airplane, and it was The Who, it was Hendrix, it was Big Brother and The Holding Company. It was a lot of other stuff, but it kind of sounded like this. We debated if I was going to play with my teeth or not, but I'm not going to. Far out, man. Yeah. He was going to lie down on the stage, but then we would have to help him back up and everything. It would take a long time. So, um, whereas Laura sounded a little bit more like this. That was a little bit, there was a little bit of a culture clash on this stage in Monterey, and this legend grew up that she bought into, that she was not well received at Monterey, that she w- she'd showed up in a kind of black dress and with a kind of band that wasn't very much, let's say, like the Jefferson Airplane, and with this kind of very piano-based music, and she walked off stage thinking that she had bombed, and this legend kind of grew up that she had bombed, although Jim, we eventually kind of, it's sort of weird, it took years to discover that that legend is, was essentially untrue. She would believe something about herself that was not true. I, well, you can imagine how horrible that is to like go years and years and find out you were actually really good and, and people liked you just fine. It's just you didn't set your piano on fire uh, and play with your teeth. Right. So it turned out, actually, D.A. Pennybaker, the very famous documentarian, who was shooting a movie at Monterey, when he went through all of his footage, much later, he was reviewing a lot of footage, and he said, well, no, the audience is really with her. You know, I mean, they're not with her, they're not screaming the way they're screaming for the Jefferson Airplane, but they're with her, they're clapping, there might have been a few people who weren't into it, but it, it was all, it was, it's a really well-known rock legend that persists unto this day, but it's not true. And she spent most of her life believing that she'd bombed at Monterey. It took her a long time to get back on stage after that. So, okay, so those are two kind of legs on a three-legged stool for her, right? American Standards and the sort of singer-songwriter movement and the incredible explosion of American rock music in 66, 67, 68. But the other thing that's a huge influence to her, as Steve has already suggested, is soul and R&B. And, and so that was the music she heard very much growing up in New York, being outdoors a lot in the Bronx, people singing on the stoops and fire escapes and outside subways. I don't think we're going to take you through the whole ordeal of her relationship with David Geffen, who is like this, you know, 
star maker, I mean, even to the point of being memorialized as a star maker by Joni Mitchell in the song Free Man in Paris. But Laura Nero is kind of his special project at first, and, and he's working with a lot of other artists who are going to become very popular. He gets Jackson Brown to open for her at one point. Laura and Jackson Brown have a relationship, but that's another story. But she's kind of special, and, and a number of artists said that what Geffen would do because musicians were already starting to think about Laura Nero as a person who was less interested in hits, less interested in being a conventional kind of rock star, and was kind of a real pure artist in some ways. And he used her as a real prestige thing. He, in particular, was wooing Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and had figured out that David Crosby really wished that he was Laura Nero. Um, that's, that's so far the weirdest thing we've all found out right, tonight, yeah. right? Can we agree on that? Yeah. So Geffen really used her as this sort of jewel in his crown. She wasn't as commercial as some of the people that he would wind up signing and working with, but she was, you know, his really special person that he discovered. And they had this terrible falling out. But um, I think what we should transition to is talking, once again, a little bit more about the complexity of this music. So we're going to be doing, and this will be a good one for you guys to sing along on, except that. So we're, seconds from now, we're going to do Stone's Soul Picnic. But like Steve, initially, you had some doubts about whether this was performable by, by neophytes like us. I think it's, my doubt was whether I could perform it. Because it's, <laughs> but, but see why that was. What, what's, well, no, it's, it's, it's a very complex tune, and Jim and I were talking about this the other day. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, partake of the sort of conventional ways that pop tunes are normally put together. In fact, if you had to say, oh, this is the A section and this is the bridge, and, you know, we're, we're talking about pre-bridges and pre-choruses and stuff because there's no, there's no vocabulary that the popular music uh, realm has for these, for these tunes. In fact, you know, I was trying to think where it was. I think it might have been at Trinity College. Maybe one of you would have been there. Jerry Moschel years ago had Steve Sondheim up on the stage over at Cine Studio. And Jerry asked him a question about songs, kind of a cheeky question, about songs that Sondheim wished he had written. And the first one out of his mouth is this song, Stone Soul Picnic. It turns out that the young Sondheim and Laura were, were friends and hung out. But for Sondheim to say, gee, I wish I'd written that song, you know, is uh, something of an accolade. And uh, undoubtedly part of it is just because it's a very, very complex and sophisticated tune. At one point, Steve and I, I think, were sitting around in his living room talking about this, and Steve was saying, maybe we should just play the recorded version. There's no way we can possibly do this. And Latanya bursts through the door and says... I love this song. <laughs> I love it, love it, love it. Can you Stop! 
But it is sort of weird. I actually, I was emailing back and forth with Jill Sobule, who's performed here uh, at well, least for a smaller group, and I was talking to her about Laura and what Laura meant, and she said, well, what the hell does Surrey mean anyway? And she sang that song. But Laura made up words sometimes, like a poet. New York Tenderberry is one of her famous albums. Tenderberry is not a word. It's her word for the sort of tender, soft, sweet heart underneath the hard crust of New York. So who knows what Surrey means? That's basically what we're going to say anyway. She did wind up buying a house in Danbury at 9 Zinn Road. It was a beautiful house with a waterfall and a pond. It had belonged. So the part of the story is that Felix Cavalieri from the Rascals had a house in Danbury. And he knew, this is, you can tell this is a story from like the late 60s, early 70s. He knew that the Swami Sachidananda was moving out of his property. And so that's the property that 
that Laura Nero wound up buying was the Swami Sachidananda property. I believe the Swami Sachidananda then went to Falls Village and had that place, which Carol King then bought. So he sold property to two you know, big divas. I mean, that wasn't his big accomplishment. He wasn't really a real estate guy, but... Um, House guru. Yes. So... One thing that we wanted to talk a little bit about here was that issue, that whole question of influence. And I know, Jim, you've been thinking a lot about you know, who we can reliably say was made different as an artist because of Laura Nero. I mean, I think almost every singer-songwriter after that becomes influenced by her. Todd Rundgren is proud to, and who was coincident with her, but was heavily influenced by her because of the soul thing. Uh, certainly Elvis. He, he actually mentions her at the beginning of a song. Ricky Lee Jones would, would be a clear example, like a literal example, I think. I, I think Joni Mitchell sort of affiliated herself with her later on. Colin, you were mentioning that on the song Blue is where, I think we were kind of describing Joni as coming from a rural place and having these wide open spaces and being sort of folkier and a Laura, being a jazzier, R&B, soulful, roots kind of singer, that they kind of came together after they had a few things out. And certainly it took Joni longer to get to that jazzy R&B place, but I think the song Blue is what you were Well, it, it's, it's Joni going to the piano more than she has in the past. She said that Laura Nero kind of gave her the courage to go to the piano. And she also said, Laura, Joni Mitchell kind of famously objects to everything that anybody ever says about her. And one thing that she told a, a London journalist was that she hates being lumped in with other women singer-songwriters. And then she said, except for Laura Nero, you can lump me in with Laura Nero, that's fine. So I would say, yeah, Suzanne Vega, but you have some more. Tori Amos, Sarah Bareilles, you know, a lot of modern people who you notice change tempos and write very emotionally and write authentically from their feelings and not blue, new, moon, June. So I think, and especially Ricky Lee Jones, who moves all over the place and is not tethered to anything except her own whatever she is doing, you know. Other songwriters who talk about being influenced, Melissa Manchester is a very young person, was influenced by her, and I shared with the group this story of her going to a workshop being taught by Paul Simon at NYU for songwriters and auditioning to be in the workshop, and Paul Simon saying, are you listening to a lot of Laura Nero? And she said, yes, and he said, you're going to have to stop doing that. Um, (laughs) But uh, Roseanne Cash cites her as an influence. Some of the performers in Los Lobos and R.E.M. have cited her as their biggest influence. And Jim, one thing that we didn't talk about is at a certain point, she also became, I think it's fair to say, a gay icon. Peter Allen talks about, you know, he went up to her at one point and said, I wouldn't be writing songs except for one for you. And then Desmond Child, I think in particular, oh, right, talks right. about, yeah, that's where I was. Yeah. So um, I worked with the... Uh, I wasn't going to you because you are a gay icon yeah. as well. That wasn't... Um, I, don't, I don't care. I mean, that's probably news to my wife, Janine, but I'm, I'm cool. Um, so I worked with this uh, singer-songwriter, Desmond Child, who you may know or you may not know, but he's written a billion hits. I mean a billion hits, like uh, Living on a Prayer, like big macho kind of songs. And he's a gay man who really was empowered by Laura Nero. And we did a PBS recording shoot of him, and he's got a big Laura Nero tattoo. And he opened his show, not with one of his own songs, but with The Man That Sends Me Home, I think, from New York Tenderberry. 
And it occurred to me that Lauren Nero is indirectly responsible for Dude Looks Like a Lady, which he also wrote. So it was just sort of a weird line to draw. <clears throat> so back to those people singing out on the stoop, singing on fire escapes, singing in front of subways, back to that R&B and soul that she loved so much. She comes out with these three devastatingly original albums. And then she decides she's going to do something else. She's going to put out an album of the music that she loves. And she's going to put out an album of covers, of soul, R&B. She really liked, in particular, I think over the course of her life, what came to be called the Philly sound. So these are all covers. And, and so this is where you come in. And we have to explain something to you, which I did over certain people's objections. Um, okay, so... So she did this album. It's actually the, the titled artist on this album is Laura Nero and LaBelle. This is Patti LaBelle had a group called LaBelle. They eventually wound up with a big hit called Lady Marmalade, which I'm sure Latanya will do for you later. Um, but uh, So she had recruited them to come in and sing with her. And um, once again, very meticulous, kind of person that drives Jim Chapelain crazy when he's producing albums, wanting to redo stuff and new ideas coming in and things she could hear in her head that she wanted to translate into the studio. And at a certain point, LaBelle, the group, got really bored. And they wanted to go off and do whatever else they wanted to do. And they went to the producer and they said, we'll bet you $1,000 that we can get all of our tracks down in one day, that we'll lay all of our vocal tracks down in one day. He took the bet. They did it. They collected their $1,000. But Patti LaBelle said later that intentionally... They kept it kind of raw, and even if they sounded a little flat or something, they, they, they left it that way on purpose. And, and I think the effect, if you listen to that album, I mean, you've been listening to it a lot, you can sort of hear the people on the fire escapes and the stoops, right? It's oh, yeah. sort of a little short of the perfection that you'd get with 82 takes of the same vocal. It's just so raw. Right. So in that spirit, we thought... <laughs> <laughs> Well, first of all, okay, here's the thing that I had to do over certain people's objections. I said, okay, we won't rehearse this song either. Okay, so we have not rehearsed this song. And so we're all kind of in the same situation. Someone's going to win a bet. Yes. We should say that we're doing, if you're a Laura Nero fan, we're not really doing the Laura Nero version because our theory was that most people know the Martha and the Vandellas version better. So that, and if only we knew that either, knew that, there'd be. A, <laughs> we're we're doing the Slim Whitman version because it's the only one that Jim. So, okay, one, two, three, four. Jimmy, Jimmy, oh Jimmy Mac, when are you coming back? Jimmy, Jimmy, oh Jimmy Mac, when are you coming back? But this boy 
This is what happens when you don't rehearse. This is when you do a poetry recitation, Colin. Need your loving. Need your loving. To the chorus, come on. Jimmy. All right, so we've got one last part of the story that we need to tell, and Steve uh, figured out an interesting way to try to do this. And so he and I are going to kind of try to do this. And I'd like to point out that you have a tambourine part in this, but, and, you know. I don't like to play the tambourine. scared of dying and I don't really care if it's peace you find in dying well then let the time be near if it's peace you find in dying and dying time is near well bundle up my coffin cause it's cold way down there don't you know it's cold way down there yeah it's crazy and cold way down there and when I die when I'm gone, there'll be one child born in this world to carry on, to carry on. So, <laughs> we're supposed to do that. <laughs> I didn't want to play it. So, three quick things about the song. First of all, um, she wrote it a little bit differently than Blood, Sweat, and Tears did it. Actually, she wrote the, wor- the words, there'll be one child born and a world to carry on, which is sort of t- has a slightly different meaning. Also, the song was originally sold to Peter, Paul, and Mary. Uh, they didn't have much of a hit with it. Uh, and then lastly, in one of Laura's rare, rare, rare television appearances, she was on some show that was hosted by Bobby Darren, and he came out and he read the lyrics to this song from a book. It was like an old antique book. Like the, like this lyric was in an old antique book at that moment. But anyway, he read them before she did some songs. I just wanted to quickly mention that when I was in college, my junior year, I was meeting some of the people coming in in the freshman class. And there was a, a young woman who came in. She was dressed all in black. She had her hair very, very short. She smoked a lot of cigarettes. And there were two things that she kind of wanted you to know about her right away. One of them was that she attempted to take her own life and she wanted you to see the scars on her wrist. That was like a very important thing on pretty short acquaintance that she wanted you to know about. And the other one was that Laura Nero was everything to her musically and that whoever her roommates were, they were going to be listening to a lot of Laura Nero music because she was going to be playing a lot of Laura Nero music. And I think about that young woman because... There was a way in which, obviously, she'd had terrible troubles already in her very young life. And as I think a lot of people did, they found a muse. They found somebody who understood, who maybe faced some of the same abysses, the same darknesses and demons. They found musical company in her music. Um, And it was, I think, a very special relationship. I often wonder, I lost touch with her. I often wonder what happened to that woman and if Laura Nero got her through any of her other challenges as she went through life.
my troubles are many and they're deep as a well. I can swear there ain't no heaven, but I pray there ain't no hell. Swear there ain't no heaven and I pray there ain't no hell. But I'll never know by living, only my dying will tell, only my dying will tell, yeah. Only my dying will tell. And when I die, and when I'm gone, there'll be one child born in a world to carry on, to carry on. So this is a song that is written by a 17-year-old girl. She's 17 years old when she writes this song. And it's about death. And when you think about it, too, I mean, one of the things that we are all dwelling on, I think, a little bit here tonight is that, you know, Laura Nero is often somebody you have to explain to people who Laura Nero is a lot of the time. And you think of... And not to make an invidious comparison, but you think of some of those people that we associate from that Monterey era. Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison. All of them died at the age of 27, died kind of flamboyantly. Um, in, in two of those three cases, their musical output was tiny, microscopic compared to Laura Nero's. Uh, I mean, Hendrix only really put out three albums. Um, Joplin put out very, very few albums. Uh, you know, we could maybe make a different case for Jim Morrison, but there's sort of a way in which I think Laura Nero may have paid a price, oddly enough, for living a little bit longer. Not longer enough, but for living a little bit longer. That the, we, somehow or other, I mean, you don't have to explain to people who Jimi Hendrix is, or Jim Morrison, or probably Janis Joplin. There's a way in which just the way they flamed out so fast and so young became part of their legend, that, that death became very much a commentary on their life. Laura's story is a little bit different. Give me my freedom for as long as I be. All I ask of living is to have no chains on me. All I ask of living is to have no chains on me And all I ask of dying is to go naturally Only wanna go naturally Just let me go naturally And when I die And when I'm gone Well, let me just stop for a second Because she didn't get to go naturally I mean, she didn't go to get to go the way that she wanted to. Instead, she went in an eerie series of coincidences. So her mother, Gilda, died of ovarian cancer at the age of 49. It was a very hard disease to detect. I mean, still is uh, a pretty stealthy disease. At that time, it was very hard to detect. She just didn't know she had it. Died at the age of 49. And eerily, uh, Laura winds up with ovarian cancer and dies at the age of 49. Um, even more eerily, she at that point had found what appeared to be her real true love, which were, was not a man she married or the man who fathered her son. It was a woman named Maria Desiderio. They lived together for 17 years, created together. Maria was an artist. 
they lived in comfort and creativity. They had pets. Uh, they raised that boy together. And about a year after Laura Nero died, Maria was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And she died about a year after that. So there's such a poignancy in thinking of this 17-year-old girl writing a song that's both, I think, naive and profound about death. And then having it creep up first on her mother in a way that was devastating for Laura, and then onto Laura, and then after Laura to Maria. And when I die And when I'm dead, dead and gone There'll be one child born And a world to carry on To carry on Mr. Colin McEnroe, right here. That was the only tambourine you were supposed to play in the entire song. You realize that, right? Um, She couldn't stop, Colin. She couldn't stop herself. You you put a tambourine in somebody's hands, and what are they going to do? They're going to, you know. Let's do that again. No, 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 no. So we're getting near the end of the evening. One thing that I will say is that, so this woman, she has the diagnosis. She's having chemotherapy. And she's supposedly, according to this legend, this woman who's not really making music anymore or something. In fact, she goes into the studio and she starts recording an album. It's an album of 16 songs, ranging from some really interesting originals. Originals that hold up, I I think, you know, as well as some of the really early work. And some covers and the covers are everything from, yeah, Goffin and King to Gershwin. She does Embraceable You. She does Ooh, Baby, Baby. And the, most of the covers are really radical reimaginings of those songs. Her version of Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow on this a- album. The album, and this is your assignment, is called Angel in the Dark. Go home. If you've got a streaming service, put it right on. And once again, listen all the way through. It's an album album. And it's really a remarkable piece of work. It is not... I think, entirely finished. Just in the same sense that some of Brian Wilson's stuff never quite got finished. You can sort of hear the things that aren't quite done, but some of her new passions, animal rights had turned out to be a passion, the environment was a passion, the rights of children were important to her. They're all there in this album. But it it is a musically very satisfying album. And people like Bernard Purdy, the great drummer, you know, I mean, a lot of people came back to work with her on it. It's terrific. All right, so on Angel in the Dark... She does some originals, and then she does these covers. And she loved a certain kind of Philly soul, which I, into which I think this fits. And uh, we're going to end the evening with one of the songs that she covers on this final album. It was released four years after her death. It took a while for uh, the... There were legal problems. There were questions about whether it would be a successful album. So Rounder Records released it in 2001. And this was one of the songs. Two, three... Many loves have come to you with a line. 
that wasn't true And then you pass them by Pass them by While you're in the center ring And their lines don't mean a thing Why don't you let me try? Let me try Thank you.